years, uh, we have been uh, engaged with Restore Church in a um, residency uh, where we're learning about church planting. So we're trying to figure out, uh, because we had no clue, how you move into a city uh, or an area where there isn't a church that is really on mission or there isn't enough churches that are on mission and how you gather people and get them on mission with you um, to spread the good news to uh, everyone in that area. So in June, Janet and I and our boys will be moving to Baltimore City where we'll be uh, just 30, 45 minutes away from here. So you guys can come visit and uh, we'll be engaging in that new endeavor of planting a church there. And one of the exciting things to Janet and I is that we get to dream a lot about what that's going to look like. Um, and so we have all sorts of conversations and, and we imagine who will show up for those services or who will be a part of it. What kind of mission will the people there want to take on? What kind of problems will folks have? We do a lot of dreaming about what it's going to look like. But realistically, we don't really have like a clear picture of what it will eventually become. Because there's a lot of factors that we don't know yet. Um, a lot of things that God could and will change in us. Um, and so we don't have a clear picture of what it will actually look like in a few years. But we have a dream. And the same is true for Christians. Uh, on Easter, a few weeks ago, we celebrated Easter, Jesus' resurrection. And when he was resurrected from the dead, he began this new journey, this new mission. He started this new thing. And when he started it, uh, even us as Christians, 2,000 years later, we, we have kind of a dream of what we think the end will look like, right? We have kind of a, a picture. Even scripture paints um, some details into a picture of what heaven will be like and what uh, the afterlife will look like. And that's what this book is about. That's what we're walking through trying to decide. Um, but we don't really have the clear picture, right? We, we don't know exactly what it will be like. And so we kind of have what N.T. Wright calls um, signposts looking, pointing into the mist. And that's kind of uh, where we are. So it's going to take some imagination for us to uh, sift through Scripture. And uh, I just want to stop and pray that God will be with us in that moment. So pray with me. God, we welcome your presence into this place, and we know that you're here. Um, your word has told us that uh, where two or more are gathered in your name, that you're present with us. So we know that you're here today, God. I pray that your spirit would speak through me. I pray that uh, your words and scripture would speak loudly. I pray that um, hearts would be open in here, God, to hear what it is you have to say to each of us. Um, and I pray that you would give us uh, enough of a picture that we are excited about the future, but also leave a little bit of mystery to it. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we look forward, we have a lot of questions, right, about what will the end times look like. And one of Perhaps the biggest question, uh, one of the big questions to me, probably one of my top three questions about the end times is, what happens to creation? Like, what happens to this planet that we live on? What happens to uh, the people who live on the planet? That's one of the big questions that I have. What happens with creation? You know, what was God thinking when he made creation? What's he doing with creation now? And what will happen in the future with creation? And how does that affect me as a believer? Historically, we've been given two options. Uh, we've been given this option, uh, which is titled the evolutionary optimism. We're going to call this today the myth of progress. And the myth of progress teaches that humanity, we're going to put these definitions up here, there you go, um, that humanity will continue evolving to become better and better until ultimately we achieve, achieve a utopia here, right? Uh, so we'll inc increasingly get better and better and sift away all the junk until we have a utopia here on earth. The other option that we've been given is called souls in transit, but we're going to call this 
the myth of escapism. So this is the idea um, that the planet doesn't matter and neither do our mortal bodies because eventually we get to shuffle off this mortal coil and head to a utopia in a completely different realm, right? So we have the myth of progress, things are getting better until we have utopia or the myth of uh, escapism that none of this really matters. Eventually we'll get to that utopia in a different place. I want to unpack each of those really quickly and show you where they are lacking. Um, first, let's talk about the myth of progress. So we're told that like a fine wine, people will get better with time, right? That uh, will continue to increasingly get better and better. So let's look at two examples, uh, just really quick examples of um, things that are supposed to create, uh, that are supposed to get better with time. One would be democracy, right? Democracy, we're promised that if we all pitch in and do our part with democracy, that eventually it'll lead to everyone getting an equal and fair voice, right? That everyone that's a part of it and doing their part, that eventually they'll get an equal and fair voice. America is today's best example of democracy, and so I would ask you, think about America. Does everyone in America have an equal and free voice? But let's take another example. What about capitalism? Capitalism is supposed to lead to the profiting of everyone who does their fair part, right? If you work hard enough, if you contribute enough, then eventually everyone will be on a level playing field, right? Has that happened in America? So while this option, uh, the myth of progress, sounds quite optimistic, it's, it's like glass half full. It's a lot like me, right? I'm glass half full type of person. I don't know if you are. But this theory does fail for several reasons. So let's unpack just two. One, uh, the earth is pretty old uh, and we still have yet to reach a utopian society. When you look around at earth, do you think of earth as a utopia? Do you think, I mean, you might think America's great. Like I, I love this town I live in. I love my life. Things are going pretty good. But is it utopia? Like is everything perfect um, around you? I submit that it's not. And the, year, and the earth is really, really old. Regardless of how old you think it is, it's really old. Humanity has been around for thousands of years, we can agree on that, still haven't achieved utopia. The second, I think, bigger problem with um, this idea of the myth of progress or evolutionary optimism is that it, it doesn't deal with evil at all. And there's several different ways that it, that it fails to deal with evil. First of all, uh, according to the theory of evolution, things continue to get better and better, right? So ergo, evil would slowly dissipate and disappear, right? And we would no longer have evil. But what's actually happened to date is that the evolution of man or the progress of man has actually led to more evil, right? You look at the world uh, back in the beginning, what, however you see the beginning to be, um, there wasn't uh, what, you can just look at one example of World War II and you can see a, a variety of terrible things that progress has given us, right? You've got the genocide of a people, right? Mankind came up with that. Um, you've got uh, eugenics, which is this terrible thing I've been learning a lot about, um, about how uh, people use science to basically uh, prop up this idea that if you have a different color skin or you're from a different area, that you are somehow lesser than other people. Of course, it's completely bogus, but that's something that the progress of man, the progress of science has led us to that. And then Probably the biggest example uh, in World War II would be what? Would be the atomic bomb, right? Like we created something that could wipe the entire planet like just from existence. That's what progress has gotten us. So it doesn't do away with evil. Um, the better and better we get, it doesn't do away with evil. It also doesn't deal with the moral problem of past evils. 
right? If we're going to live in a utopian society, then, then we shouldn't have to worry about all of the terrible things that happened in the past. I don't know about you, but for me, I think about things like, uh, like World War II. I wasn't there. I had no part in World War II. I'm still sad about it, right? It still like messes with me somewhere inside. I think about uh, this other institution of American slavery, and I think about that. And I had nothing to do with that personally, but I still feel this sense of uh, frustration and anger and all sorts of emotions about it, right? So in a utopian society, we would no longer have to deal with the past evils, and the myth of progress doesn't, doesn't give us a solution. Uh, it doesn't fix that. Um, we try to fix things, like uh, American slavery was attempted to be fixed by this idea of reparations, right? That somehow if you could trace your lineage, um, that your family were, were American slaves years ago, that you would somehow get, get either money or land or something like that. But that didn't lead to healing, right? Uh, it was like a band-aid on this massive gaping wound. And so the myth of progress doesn't, doesn't deal with past evils. And lastly, it completely underestimates the nature and the power of evil. Evolutionary progress suggests that evil was created and that therefore, like, man created it. That, that it's because of man that evil exists. Like, we, we made it up. Um, and so therefore, if we made it up, then we can do away with it, right? Like, anything we create, we can destroy. So if mankind made it, mankind can destroy it. So we could simply overcome evil by working harder. Maybe if we improve our sciences or maybe if we improve our technology, we become more educated or just simply have a better work ethic, we can advance ourselves out of evil. But, but we all know that hasn't happened. That doesn't happen. Um, it's it's uh, unrealistic. So the myth of progress has some holes. Uh, maybe you, hopefully you agree with me. Uh, the other side is the myth of escapism. Now this idea of escapism is something that's predicated on uh, the Greek philosopher Plato. He painted this bleak picture of humanity stuck in a cave, right? And, and we're living with these mere flickers of the light of reality. We just barely see what's really happening. This idea that uh, in this concept that earth and our mortal bodies don't mean anything. They're completely useless. They're kind of in the way. Um, and that means that our present condition offers no promise of hope. It's kind of a sad perspective, but let's work it out a little bit more. Um, the flickering lights give us glimpses into the reality of our other existence on this ethereal plane. So the idea being that, that what's happening here isn't real. It's kind of like the matrix, right? But up here, there's this, this greater thing that happens, and it's kind of your spiritual existence. And your goal then in life would be to become more intelligent, to... Uh, do more study, figure things out, and eventually get to a place where you arrive on this ethereal plane and no longer have to worry about this physical world. This gives us um, some issues because uh, the idea being that uh, we believe, in that theory, uh, you believe that humans were made for something or some place entirely different. And, and we're spiritual beings who are like trapped here on earth in these mortal shells, and it's either a mistake or it's some sort of awful cosmic joke that God's like playing on humanity. Uh, both also not a very positive perspective. But um, I think about this um, in terms of scripture. There's, uh, there was a group of people who lived during Jesus' time called the Gnostics. Uh, it was this gr uh, Greek group of people who believed that the pursuit of knowledge, which uh, Greek, the Greek word for knowledge is gnosis, which is where Gnostic comes from, and now they believe that the pursuit of knowledge, this platonic idea, is essentially all that really matters. The sad thing about that is that 
in that theory, the world doesn't matter. Creation doesn't matter. Your fellow man doesn't matter. Your own body doesn't matter. It, it kind of uh, puts a damper on environmentalism or even the concept that Jesus specifically said, love thy neighbor, just puts the kibosh on that. Um, so I know when you think about that, you're like, that's really negative. That sounds terrible. While I was reading this, I was like, this is terrible. Who thinks like this? Who, who walks like this? Well, the truth of the matter is Christians. Christians often do, right? Christians are guilty of swimming in this stream of thought for a long, long time, believing that as Christians, we're simply biding our time here on earth until we can, what? Shuffle off this mortal coil and go to a better place, right? And we get trapped in this myth of... Um, escapism where this world doesn't matter. But the truth of the matter is that abandonment of creation for an altogether different world is not biblical at all. And I don't want to steal Aaron's thunder from next week. You should come join us at the living room uh, next Sunday and hear more about, uh, about that specifically. But this option, the myth of escapism, also has some holes in it. So these myths fall short in explaining the fate of creation. The myth of progress is woefully inept at dealing with evil the myth of escapism uh, lacks in caring for our planet and in fellow man. Um, lacks is a nice way to say it. Early Christians, though, in Scripture, they, they didn't fall into either of these camps. You see, early Christians didn't believe that the world was getting better and better through evolution, nor did they believe that it was getting worse and worse and we'd eventually need to escape it. Christians didn't believe in either of those myths. But, creation, um, but they do believe that creation at large... Um, was headed for something better. And so let me read you a quote from the book that we're studying by N.T. Wright. He says, Only in the Christian story itself, certainly not in the secular stories of modernity, do we find any sense that the problems of the world are solved not by a straightforward upward movement into the light by us, but by the creator God himself going down into the dark to rescue humankind and the world from its plight. There's a third option, guys, and it is the restoration of creation. It's the biblical concept that God wants to holistically transform and change creation. Not do away with it, not send us somewhere else, but he wants to use it and he intends to and he will transform it holistically. I like this option because it restores dignity and worth to the created world, to trees and plants and animals, and to God's favorite creation, you. It extends dignity and honor and gives back a purpose to you. I like this a lot better. So let's unpack this a little bit more and figure out what our purpose is now. This hope for creation uh, is incredible. I love the title of this book, Surprised by Hope. It's such a, a fun way uh, to talk about uh, what God is doing and what he has in store for us. And I really, I really love that. But it's not just hope for creation. It's hope for you and I, giving us a purpose again. I believe that the Bible is a narrative. Um, it's a story that, uh, with different themes flowing throughout it. And right now I want to unpack three uh, themes that touch on and really help explain and fill in the gaps of these two myths that we studied earlier uh, and give us a holistic, uh, full and complete picture of what happens in the end. So the first theme that runs throughout scripture is the goodness of creation. From Genesis 1 and all the way till the end, we read over and over and over again that God created, he made, he saw that it was good, and then he 
gifted it to us out of love. Those are all very important things that show us that creation is actually a good thing. It's not a bad thing. Um, creation God made to reflect himself, to reflect God, that creation would reflect God back to God in worship, that uh, we would reflect him and that our reflection of him would show the rest of creation who he is and his great qualities, that we would look out upon the rest of creation and that we would experience his qualities and we would in turn um, praise and worship him for what he has done. So creation is a good thing and that's uh, resounding throughout scripture. The second theme is the nature of evil. Remember how the myth of progress fails to deal with evil in several different ways? Well, this concept, scripture, the story of the Bible, actually does deal uh, holistically with evil. Another quote from the book, he says, evil consists then not in being created, but in the rebellious idolatry by which humans worship and honor elements of the natural world rather than the God who made them. You see, evil's origin is actually not created. It wasn't created. God didn't create uh, evil. It is a post-creation thing. It is not of God. It is not of the creator. It's not God's intent. And that means that it will not eventually evolve away. Um, it will continue to get, to get worse, as we have seen. So there needs to be a different answer to dealing with evil, and that is the restoration of creation. That something or someone, God, would come in and holistically change what is already. Not destroy or do away with, but that he would take what we have and that he would restore it um, to its original uh, beauty. This deals with past evils, the restoration of creation. This deals um, with it through radical forgiveness, through the grace of the cross. One of the quotes that he says in, the Bible, or in, uh, in this book uh, by N.T. Wright that I love is he says that the cross equals God's no to evil and his yes to creation. I'll say it again, the cross equals God's no to evil and his yes to creation. It's as if God used the cross if, and he used um, the second creation. He used this new creation that happens from the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that God used that to put a stop to evil and to affirm creation. No other, these other ideas don't put a stop to evil, but the cross does. The cross takes evil's biggest weapon, which was death, and defeats it, and makes it uh, impotent, and makes it lacking, makes it worthless, and in the same time, affirms creation and its worth and its use. The last theme that runs throughout scripture that I want to talk about is the plan of redemption, and this is a beautiful, uh, a beautiful piece that runs throughout scripture, this idea that what has been enslaved will someday be liberated. We see it, and many of you who know history, whether or not you've read the Bible, know of the Israelites and how they were um, taken out of Egypt, right? Uh, after being in bondage and slavery, they were physically taken out by God out of, um, out of slavery. And that theme runs throughout scripture over and over and over again until we get to the cross. When now no longer is it a select group of people who are offered this freedom from bondage, but now all of humanity, all of mankind is offered the ability after having been enslaved by anger, addiction, lust, and a multitude of other sins to experience complete liberation from the weight of the guilt and the consequences that come with sin. 
The cross is the only thing that does that. And it's incredible to see that story and to feel that liberation and that freedom that comes with forgiveness. It's incredible to feel that, but it's also surprising. Uh, I don't know if you're a believer or not, but for me, when I became a believer, it was surprising to me that these terrible acts I had committed, that they could just be wiped clean, that they could just wash away, that they would be gone in an instant. And not only that, but that God would no longer remember them, that he wouldn't like keep some sort of record that when I get to the pearly gates, he'll say, yeah, you were a Christian, but what about these 40 things you've got to, you know, these 40 major things that you've got to, you know, uh, account for? No, God doesn't do that. And that's surprising. And the hope of the future of creation, the restoration, is a hope-filled thing that Jesus himself brings. So I want to read about Jesus. Um, if you'll pull out the, pick up a Bible next to you, turn to page 821. We're going to be reading out of the book of Colossians. Uh, and in this passage, uh, if you turn it to 821, the second um, column there, verse 15, that's where I'm going to start. This is talking about Jesus. It says, The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him, that's Jesus, and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. It's talking about his resurrection. So that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood that was shed on the cross. The story of Jesus is an incredible story. It's surprising. It's exciting. This idea that Jesus was there in Genesis 1, that he was a part of the initial creation, that he was the firstborn among creation, that he was there from the genesis of creation, but that he is also there when God begins a new work and this new creation, and that his resurrection is the beginning of that. It's the jump off. It's the platform from which all of it, all of the future restoration of creation is built upon. Being the firstborn from among the dead, his resurrection, God could have chosen to do several different things, right? He could have followed the myth of progress, and he could have given Jesus a completely new body. Or he could have welcomed him into heaven for eternity, this idea of escapism, right? But he didn't. He repurposed and he remade and he overhauled the physical body of Jesus. And I don't want to get ahead. I don't want to steal thunder because that's another week. In two weeks, we're going to talk more about that. And so join us again at the living room. Have you heard it enough yet? At the living room on May 14th for that, uh, for that message. But with the viewpoint of renewal of creation, if we believe that God is going to restore and renew and redeem creation, then if you're a follower of Jesus and you believe that, then you have to believe in the sanctity of life. You have to believe, you don't get an option, you have to believe from womb to tomb that, that your physical body matters and that God cares about every single person. This means that the Arkansas executions that have happened over the last week should really upset you. You should have some righteous anger inside of you because of that, because God cares about those people who are on death row, regardless of what they did. He cares about them. 
And he wants to redeem and repurpose and reuse even those people, even the most, the worst of what you can imagine, God wants to use them. So you should have some righteous anger in you about, uh, about things like that because it, that's not Jesus' justice. That's not who he is. And that doesn't fit our paradigm of the restoration of creation. What does fit our paradigm is this idea that God loves you. That he loves not just your spirit, not just the insides of you or this spiritual side, but he loves the physical you. He actually loves you. You are important to him and he wants you to experience redemption. He wants you to experience restoration. He wants you to know what it's like to be healed, to be forgiven, to be loved, to be cared for. That's what God wants for you. You're important to him. Now, American Christianity has a history of stopping here with this restoration of me, that God came for me, that Jesus came for me, that God loves me. This is all true. That's true. God does love you as an individual. Um, but we often feed this sin of individualism as Americans by believing that, that God is my personal savior. And he is, but he's also a communal savior. He actually cares about our community. He cares about the people around you, and he wants us to do life together. The renewal of creation, rather than its destruction or abandonment, gives creation a purpose and a future. And we collectively get to be a part of the renewing of the rest of creation. So now the protection of our earth is for the flourishing of others, for the future of others. We should become environmentalists who actually care about trees and streams. We should think more like that because creation does matter. And we should become people who care for the earth and the things that God made. We should also become people who care directly for our neighbors. We should be a people who are known for loving other people. No matter how ugly their heart is or no matter how much you dislike that person, we should be a people as Christians who are known for loving each other. You see, Christ, uh, Scripture was written from a communal uh, standpoint. And as I read through scripture with this new lens, it's amazing what types of things you begin to see that it was written for a people, not just a person. It wasn't written for me to read individually, but for us to read collectively. This is why we do sermons. This is why we teach. This is why we talk as communities at MCs. But we're, you're important to the church, N not just your time, not just your money, not even just your spiritual gifts. You are important. Your presence is important here. You are needed here. Uh, and you need the church. That's how we were created to live in community. And it's really a beautiful thing that when we come together, we encourage one another. We forgive each other. We provide for one another. And we welcome everyone with welcome arms, uh, open arms, into the saving grace of Jesus Christ. And that's what the community restoration looks like. Guys, the ramifications of uh, believing in the restoration of creation are incredible. It, this is big. This isn't just a minor thing. It, it's a radical paradigm shift where now all of a sudden the flourishing of this planet and the flourishing of your neighbor matters to you. It impacts you directly. And it's also a big part of God's plan. I want to read one last quote from N.T. Wright. He says, What creation needs is neither abandonment nor evolution but rather redemption and renewal. And this is promised and guaranteed by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Let's pray.
God, may the restoration of your good creation, initiated by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, be ever on our minds and in our hearts. May it alter the way in which we care for creation. May it influence the way that we treat our neighbors, evoking a sense of compassion and desire to see everyone flourish. And God, may we be a people confident in our daily renewal, anticipating the full realization of the coming kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.